So welcome, Olivia Hurst. Really great to have you with us today for this conversation. And it's a conversation, again, around origins and around storytelling and specifically your story and how your story shows up in your work. And I'm going to leave you to introduce yourself because I think it's always interesting to hear how somebody introduces themselves. So welcome, Olivia. Hello. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Olivia. I'm a playwright and an actor sometimes, but mainly now just a playwright. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know what else to say about myself. I'm from Yorkshire, which I, I say a lot. People say to me, how from Yorkshire I tell people I am. <laughs> That's great. You don't need to say any more than that. A playwright and an actor. And I was just trying to remember how we first encountered you. You came to a narrative workshop, but was that through Agnes? How it was, that, yeah. And what was that? So it was through you being at drama school at East 15. And I think yeah. encountering you and your, your cohort at East 15 drama school. It was actually a really weird... Sorry, I interrupted you, but... Um, I went with Agnes to one of your storytelling, like a show. It's not really a show, but like a storytelling evening. And we put our names in a hat and you pulled both our names out at random. You pulled out Agnes's and then mine. And it was just really weird that both, there was like 50 people there. That's just really weird. So you won a place on that workshop, both of you. I had forgotten that. I had completely forgotten that. But I don't think Agnes has ever come because she went to Iceland. Yeah, she was leaving. I was like sleeping. I was in a bit of a rough place and I was sleeping on her sofa and she'd fetched me out to this storytelling night to try and make me go out a bit. It was just really weird. And here we are now. Fate. Yeah, you see, fate. It was already sounding like a story, which is (laughs) great. And it is. And it is. And the other thing that I just registered was that the last time I went to the theatre... The last time I went to the theatre, full stop, live, in a space with other people, was to see your last show. So that's almost a year ago now, the incident room at the diorama. And I think we'll, we'll get on to talking about the, the different elements of your work. But where shall we start, Jane? Oh, I don't know. Where shall we start? I'm looking at Olivia like I'm thinking there's going to be an answer <laughs> in just looking in your face. But I think... Well, I'm always interested in going back in back to the beginning, really. So what's, for example, I don't, and I don't know if you do remember, but what's your first uh, memory of performing something? Or, or writing, you know, writing or performing something, I guess. When I was very little, I was about, you know, when you send like three-year-olds to ballet class, and I don't really know why, but you do. Mm-hmm. Um, people did back in the day I remember I had an exam and I was about I was really young I was very little and my dad has a quite severe auntie called Lillian who has had very straight hair and was quite like a matriarch she was like they were all just very strong matriarchal sort of women around in our family when I was little and she was very kind of hard to please. And I did my exam piece, which was something like the naughty Blackberry fairy <laughs> <laughs> for Auntie Lillian. And she said that I was going to be a star. And I was like, I've impressed Auntie Lillian. Wow. And I really remember this. You had to skip backwards for eight counts. And I remember losing count. <laughs> I remember not being able to count to eight. 
<laughs> but Lillian didn't mind. But Lillian didn't mind. High praise. It's so funny, isn't it? Those those seminal moments. Mm. Um, if Lillian was here now, she probably wouldn't remember that no. <laughs> at all. But we've all got those moments where something just clicked. And if you remember it, it was significant, is how I think about it. Something happened for you there. The naughty Blackberry fairy. So we can, we can expect that to turn up at some point in your canon of work that you're creating. Absolutely. <laughs> Just prepare to watch me not be able to count to eight in something. <laughs> so this idea, this idea of origin is, you know, none of us have one origin um, to, to being who we are and doing what we do. But just to put that idea in into the space, where does it take you? Um, home, I guess. Origin always means home to me. Mm. And we have quite a strong sense. Uh, we're quite a close family. We have quite a strong sense of home. Mm. And we always have, I think, we still do. Like even in the, when you were talking about lockdown, you talked about your children being in and out. And we were all renting, me and my two brothers were all renting in random. I was lodging in a bedroom in Clapton and Bobby and his partner were in different places in London. And we all sort of gravitate, you all end, we all ended up back at home for over the summer. And it was really interesting to spend that amount of time together as a family, as all as adults, because we hadn't done it since we were, since we were young. It was really fun. It was really good. We got on. Take us to a moment with your whole adult family being back together last summer. We had a party for my older brother's birthday and we all got dressed up as characters. It's so stupid because Bobby was 33. So he was like, I'm the age that Jesus was. (laughs) So we all had to get dressed up as characters from the Bible. (laughs) So we're all, but in like just whatever we had. So like curtains and random bits of sheets that we found and we all dressed up as things from the bible and then we had this massive party massive with like six people party in in our parents conservatory and we all got really really drunk and so drunk like bobby fell in a coat cupboard and couldn't get out and it's like the drunkest i've ever been in front of my parents it was really really silly so who did you choose to be i was delilah and my partner was samson (laughs) And then I ceremoniously cut off his hair. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Gave him a lockdown haircut at the party. How fantastic. That's I hope great. there's pictures of this whole event. <laughs> In fact, it sounds like a show, I have to say. Just to, just to kind of segue into making theatrical work. Um, brilliant, brilliant memory. Thank you for that. Um, so Origin took you home. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the line that's brought you to where you are now, you know, you identified yourself as a playwright and an, and an actor. I, I said it's always interesting because, you know, I know as a creative person that sometimes if people say, what do you do? It's like, where do I start? I, um, I've done and do lots of different things. But that choice to say, I'm a playwright and an actor. Um, tell us about those two different identities for you. Uh, I think I always say actor because that's what I said first and that's what I trained as and that was a big thrust. That was a big, uh, like a focus point for me. And I I always thought of of writing as just part of acting. I thought that all actors also wrote. And I think so much of like when you do drama at school and things, so much of it is devising or making your own work. 
So I just assumed it was the same thing. I thought that all actors made their own work and wrote things and and told other actors where to stand and was a bit bossy (laughs) in the rehearsal room. Thought that everyone sort of did that. Um, And then when I got to drama school, I kind of found out rather quickly that people didn't and people don't all write things and people don't, they, they don't. And not all actors want to write and make things. They just want to do something slightly different. Mm -hmm. And then I lost a lot of my confidence. Like I lost my, I had a big confidence crisis about halfway through drama school. Um, And I've never really got it back with the acting. I still do acting sometimes and I enjoy it and I love it, but uh, the little, there's a little flame, I always say, and it's gone somehow. And I lost it that year. I don't know where it went or quite why, but I just lost it that time. And then I never really got it back, but the writing flame always stayed. It just grew and grew and grew. Hmm. So whatever, I always, it just became this bigger thing. So that's why I was like, oh, playwright, but I was first an actor and I trained as an actor. So I've never really formally trained as a writer, if you like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That feels familiar, that that idea of, of having a, a place that you started. Uh, and I think for both of us, it was in acting too, and mm-hmm. then um, diversified. And, and it's interesting, that kind of archetype of... Um, drama schools kind of beating you down um supposedly to build you back up again um so yeah that idea that you lost something there is a do you yeah no I was going to say what I thought about it do you how do you feel about that loss um sort of sad but also I don't know I don't feel sort of sad that's that's the answer. Yeah. Mm. And, I, and I can really relate to that because I, I have done lots of different things. But the first thing that I did as a career predominantly was be an actor. So that feels like that. I mean, and that is still a really big part of my identity, even though now it's a, it's a small percentage of, of what I do. So and sort of sad is a, a kind of predominant feeling. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, particularly now, that most people have more than one identity. It's really difficult to just do one thing in this world, no matter what it is. Most people are kind of multitasking and doing, um, doing all kinds of different things. But our identity and who we are and, you know, what, what stamps us, what's the first thing that stamps us, I think is, is, of course, really important. Where my mind is going to is going back to the the first piece of work of yours that I saw, which was Good Stock, um, which I'd love you to talk a little bit about, because in terms of kind of coming home, in, in terms of choosing material and using your story, it can't get closer to home than that because it's it's about your your body, um, and so how did that happen? And what was and what was the process really of kind of thinking this is this is something that I want to work with, and I want to work with it in a way that I'm going to I'm going to put it on a stage. I'm, you know, it's really going to be out there. I think. So I got diagnosed with BRCA1, which is a genetic mutation that uh, Angelina Jolie has, and it makes you more likely to develop breast and ovarian cancer throughout your lifetime. Um, And it runs in my family, so I'd always sort of known about it, and a lot of the sort of matriarchal women that I was talking about 
um, passed away and my auntie, my auntie Jane, died quite young. And I remember at the time thinking she was quite old, but she was 40. And now I'm 32. I'm like, that is not old. That is not old at all. Um, and it was all quite, people were very angry. I remember a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and a lot of anger surrounding these deaths of these women that were sort of told that that it was it wasn't linked and it's an anomaly and it's coincidence and my auntie Jane was told for a long time there was nothing wrong with her at all which was great and then there obviously was so I'd always sorry I'm waffling now I've like gone off one um no it's really interesting Olivia actually to take <laughs> us right back to back into that family space and I suppose I have to go back to the family and all of that because that's why I was so determined. I was 23 when I found out and I was at drama school and I pushed and pushed and pushed to be tested because I just had to know. I'm a bit like, I can't, I'm a bit like that with a scab. I can't not pick a scab. I just have to know what's underneath it. And I couldn't let it be. And people were like, don't you think you should let it lie until you're older? And I was like, no, I know. I know now I know too much. It's like opening Pandora's box, but not taking the cellophane off. I'm like, no, let's just, let's just take the cellophane off god's sake um so I found out then I found out during drama school that I had BRCA1 and I went straight back I did that I did that thing you know and you're not allowed to miss a day of drama school else you're not serious or committed enough about a day a career in the arts so I found out one day in Yorkshire and the next day was in a dance class and it was all very strange Mm. um and then I was we were a few years out of drama school and we were running a company me and my friends set up a company that we were running and I was on the Royal Court playwright group which was another fun time <laughs> and I wanted to do I thought there was something cool I thought it would be cool to write like a scientifically correct like medically correct something and I was like I think there's something in writing a play about like a medical thing and I'm quite interested in science and I was like wouldn't it be cool to be able to do like a science play Mm. that's where I kind of started with it and then I started researching like other other diseases or other scientific topics and the BRCA1 thing just got was so big in my head I couldn't quite get around it it was really hard to see around and in the end I was like just just do the thing that just do I felt like I just had to admit that I, what I really wanted to do was write a play about myself. So I did. <laughs> I was like, just, just admit that you want to write a play. <laughs> and then about yourself. I, in a way, I feel like it was like a big over-accept. I feel like I was a bit like, I'm so... Because I pushed so hard to be tested and so I was so determined that I was going to be fine. It was like an even bigger over-accept of being fine. And I was like, I'm so fine. I'm going to write a whole show about it. And then just like take it to Edinburgh and I'm going to be, I'm going to show everyone that I'm fine, that I am fine with this and I've, I've handled it and I'm, I'm cool and I'm fine. And we just, we thought it would be good and we thought it would be interesting. And I don't know, I don't really, we were mental. I don't really know why we did it now where we're like strangers, come, come and see my trauma. It's a bit strange. Pay 10 pounds. <laughs> I'll make you cry. Um, but yeah, it was, I felt the bits that I've liked the best of that show are the bits that I wrote. The I wrote in a character that was for my gran. So Alona, lovely older actress, Alona played my gran. And I like wrote down some of her memories and some of how she felt. So it wasn't, I didn't, I obviously just didn't want to do a play about myself. It was a play about a family and intergenerational things. And Rihanna, 
my friend played like a lot of other of my family members and my friends and some doctors. So it was like, it was a play. It wasn't just like a long monologue of me talking about myself, <laughs> even though that was there. Um, but yeah, I really like those bits and my gran saw it and it was sort of special and important, I think. And my gran has since died. And um, I just, I'm really glad I spoke to her and wrote down those, those memories and that that's there somehow as a record. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've got this image now of the show and seeing your grandmother in the show. And what I thought the show achieved really well was absolutely the thing about having the science because it was really informative. On one level, it was really, really informative um, about BRCA1, which I hadn't, I kind of knew a bit about but didn't really understand. Mm. And then with just the real impact on, a, on the kind of lineage of, women in your family and so the combination of those two things um, worked fantastically well and was very moving and I'm really interested in what you say about the, the impulse to tell that story and of course when when we open up and we share a story because of the way that story works if if I hear your story, it makes me begin to think about my story. So what I imagine happened when you took that on the road was that you then, you know, maybe, well, tell me about it, had people coming up to you and wanting to, to talk about it after the show. So this thing that is a big thing for you and you make it into a piece of work then gets bigger and bigger because it begins to attract all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other similar stories. So, so what was the impact of that like for you being on tour? It was, it was just like that. We used to, we'd almost have like a queue of people. So in Fringe Theatre, what happens often is you finish a show and everyone claps and then you have to instantly tidy up the set because someone else is coming in and yeah. the rest of it. So we'd be tidying up the set. And for so in the theatre space, we found it, well, we found it in Edinburgh and then we carried on doing it because people, once you're in the bar, it, you're in a different environment and people were more shy about coming up. But when we were still in the theatre space and they were sort of milling about, the audience were milling about and getting their coats and we were putting, ripping down the set as fast as we possibly could, people would want to come up to us and tell us about their story. And they didn't really want us to say anything about us. We'd obviously spent an hour talking about ourselves yeah. and I just listened to their stories and it was, it was very powerful and very amazing and, and quite, quite difficult and a bit, a bit strange. And I hadn't prepared for it. I was like, oh, I did not prepare. I just sort of put this show on and didn't think about any of this stuff. And, and now there's like a queue of people that want to tell me that their relatives are also dead or that they've also got and it was just a bit it was very very powerful and a very I felt the weight of it um yeah Th that's really hard what you've identified then it's interesting to say that um it, it happened very readily in the space where you had told the story because mm. that's like the story space and there's a kind of contract in that space that you're all in that space together to share stories and as soon as you go into the bar and you become an mm. actor buying a pint of lager it's it's changed it's almost like the 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 transaction has changed or the relationship has changed when you step out of the space but but the other thing about um not being prepared for it yes the danger is that you just that are then a sponge to uh, you just start to absorb all this other trauma all these other stories um that you've activated and that have 
that need an outlet. It's like some, they need to tell somebody and they'll tell you because they know that you understand. That's, that's tough, that. It was, it was tough, but it was... I think we were just naive. I think we were quite young and we put this play on. I mean, Alona, who played my gran, was, she once sat us down and was like, the most thing that concerns me is your extreme youth. Because we were trying to... We'd never hired another actor before. We were very... She once almost refused to go on stage because we didn't have programs. She taught us a lot about, <laughs> about the theatre industry and how you should um, how you should just operate and how it's important to have a program. So since then, we've always had a program. Um, but she was like, "You're great. The play is great. I totally believe in this project. What, right. The only, you're just very, very young. I think I was about 25, and Rihanna, my partner who runs a company with me, was 22. I think at the time. Mm. So we were just like." I look back now and I'm like, we were men, we were mad. <laughs> yeah, and that's the great thing about being 22 and 25. Yeah. You think, I'm, I'm going to do that because you don't know, you don't know why it might be difficult or you don't know why you shouldn't do it or, or any, any of that. So I love that said the thing that worries me is your extreme youth, you know, and as you go through your life, you will tell that story in... You know, in different ways, you already have have a different perspective on it. Well, it's interesting. You're you're even now saying, "What the hell were we doing?" Um, even though it sounds like it, you were doing something really powerful that connected with people and that gave those people a voice, even if just for three or four minutes after mm. the show to grab you and say, "This is my experience." Yeah, you know, that, that's the power of of telling a sto- uh, your story. I agree. I think. Because one of the reasons that I pushed on and did it and performed it was because I heard another lady on the radio, Claria Hamnet, I think her name is. Uh, she's a BBC radio like DJ and, and, and presenter. And she also had BRCA1. And she did a radio show about having her preventative mastectomy, double mastectomy. And she was about 28, 29, and she was six. She was like, I'm single, I'm 28, but I'm going to go and have this operation. I'm going to do it now because both her mum and her sister had died and it was really sad. Mm. And that helped me hearing that she'd done that and that she was a young woman and that she was single and that she was still dating and that she wasn't. A lot of the information that you get, a lot of the information that they have, it might be changing now, but was geared very much towards an older generation of, of woman and someone more my mum's age and someone who's, they would expect you to sort of be married then have children. And there was a lot of very frank conversations with doctors who were like, have you got kids? And I was like, no, I'm 23. And they're like, well, have kids in the next two years and then then we'll do this, then we'll do this. And it was all quite a bit like, well, get yourself sorted out. And wow. then we'll, and I was just a bit like, wow, the the kind of and all the leaflets all the pictures they had of the reconstructions were all of older bodies mm. and older women and it was quite disconcerting to come from a sort of drama school very aesthetic very preoccupied with image sort of a place and be shown pictures of like this is what you look like and I was like but that's someone who's that's someone who's like 50 and they're like well what difference does that make and I'm like well actually I'm 23 and it makes lots of difference mm-hmm. yeah. wow Oh, there's a lot in there. Uh, and the other thing for me about that that piece is that it's it's your story, and it's it, it's those the matriarchs in your family that you talked about, the people who are still there in your family, and the women who didn't survive, and and it's their story as well. And 
what was their reaction to you making that that piece of work? They were they were really supportive. Like my gran, a lot of the character of um, Elizabeth, a lot of what my gran says, my gran said. So it's not verbatim, but I did. I I spent a lot of time talking to her. And she was, by this time, there was me and her, and we were the only people left in my immediate family that knew we both had it. And everyone else that had it in our immediate family was dead. So it was quite, I felt like, it was important. I don't know. It was really, it really helped me to talk to her, to talk to someone else who I knew who had it and not just someone. Yeah. And she was an incredible person. And, and my, and they're all incredible. They're all just so, we have this weird thing where we sometimes think that if, we don't think it, but it could almost be because my grand, all the men that die in pit accidents. It's weird. This whole generation of men died at work or in pit accidents. Or my dad's dad had a brain hemorrhage at work and just died one day at, I think he was 39 he just went to work and never came back mm. and so, and then all the women died mysteriously of this like ovarian slash breast cancer thing and a lot of them were suffering in the 70s so they didn't tell them right up until like the last the last minute they because obviously in the 70s cancer was this death sentence so they just didn't tell them that mm. they had it until the last minute and it was all a bit trauma and so it, could, it comes from this place of like a lot of trauma and my gran was so incredibly strong and and just just really hard I don't know she just wouldn't die she was she was amazing she survived breast and ovarian cancer she just kept going she went to see like four-day operas she's just mad she and she traveled and she just made herself do things she made herself get up and go and the the kind of tenacity to be able to do it and not just to lay down and give up is still staggers me somewhat and in the end she died of um asbestosis which she got from cleaning she got from washing her husband's overalls from the power station so the 70s came for her after all the 70s came for her what a surprise that's that's quite a story olivia and i can see why it must be great to have captured her in the show you know that this amazing woman was was in part captured by by the actress that you've you've talked about uh, and the words that you you wrote down, um, and why that bond when you were the two that were left was was so strong. It, it we we were just having a look earlier at um, how you write about the show on on the website, and you say this uh, something like this is a show made without the permission of. My family, or something. Sure, yeah. relatives without, without their, their permission. Yeah, without, but but yeah. now I'm hearing that in a slightly different way yeah. because they couldn't give permission. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what what did that mean to you to say that? I mean, it's a slightly cheeky thing to say, but yeah, uh, it was that in part because obviously Mike Jane and people couldn't couldn't say they didn't want me to do it because they didn't have a voice to say that, and people like my dad and my brothers and. And my mom, I didn't, I kind of wrote the show before telling anyone I'd written the show. And for a long time, like at the Royal Court Writers Group and places that I was kind of working on the show, I told them it was fictional. So for a long, 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 long time, I pretended like the main character's name was like Emily. And we talked about it as though I, because I didn't want people to get clouded with like feeling sorry for me. <laughs> I was like, I kind of want proper feedback. I want to know if this is 
good because if it's not good I don't want people to feel that they have to flatter me or say it's good because it's a personal story and it's true mm. I'd rather people give their honest opinion if like if if it's not good enough to go on stage I don't want to put it on stage mm. sort of a thing but yeah my dad and my dad felt quite he he struggled with like he didn't want to get tested to have BRCA1 mm. he did so but for me to get tested he had to get tested oh because you have to well, that was the guidelines then. So I had to, you have to have someone in your immediate family test positive for BRCA1 before you can then be tested. Right. So my gran had been tested and had it, but for me, to, that wasn't enough for me to get tested. I had to, I had to be able to, yeah, I had to be able to say that my dad had got it. So there's a 50 50 chance that I had then had it. So, so had, and he struggled with that. Right. Mm-hmm. You, had you, what, sorry? To, you had to persuade him. I think my mum did most of the persuading and I did a lot of flailing around at that time. Um, not being very helpful. It's interesting, that idea um, that you you presented it as fiction <clears throat> and, and why, which is, which is really interesting. Um, you, you know, you wanted it to stand up in its own right as a piece of theatre, as a piece of writing that worked and how it would... <clears throat> how it would shift people's perspective um, and uh, on giving you feedback on, on what you'd written if they knew it was your story. So were you just saying, look, I've, re- I've researched this really well? Yeah, yeah. Right. And I am a bit of a research, like I am just a bit research heavy. I love a bit of research. So I really do kind of get into it. So I think I've managed to fool people. But it, it ties back for me to how you were first talking about it. And um, a number of times you, you kind of said, uh, you commented on, oh, making a show about myself, you know, oh, yeah, it's all about me. And that kind of um, embarrassment at the idea that um, people would think you've made a show all about you, so you're centre of attention. And it's just an interesting idea about around telling our story. Mm. And, and it is one that we encounter occasionally, that people say, oh, I don't just want to talk about me. And we almost have to persuade people that, but when you talk about your experience, you're not just talking about you. you you're then telling the story of the people around you, and you're also activating the stories of all the listeners. So... Can you say any more about that? Uh, it was definitely in the way you talked about it that it's... Yeah, I I think a bit like my mouth of mud voice, I have a little bit of a hang-up. I think, I don't know if it's a playwriting thing, I think a lot of actors and playwrights and creative people are a little bit, not self-centred, not self-centred, but self-centred. <laughs> um, I think how I relate, I, I very often, if something happens, I relay it in and then take it back out. And it's like, a, I don't know if it's a habit. I don't know if it's just who I am. But I off, very often, if something happens in life, I'll, re- I'll think about it and how, how I feel about it or how a situation has been like that for me. So if someone says, oh, this happened to me, blah, 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 I dropped my dinner on the floor. I'll think about a time I dropped my dinner on the floor. And then, and I don't know if it, and I'm really aware that I do that. 
and that I don't want to come across as always me being like, oh, I want to drop my dinner on the floor. Right. <laughs> to take away their trauma of dropping their dinner on, their floor, on the floor. I don't want to be like, oh, I also did that. <laughs> to process it, I kind of think about time that I did that. But it's interesting. That's what we do, isn't it? Mm. I mean, we, mm. we make connections so we can relate and we can empathise and we can understand. But it's interesting that little, that little default to go, oh, I just don't want to make it about me just by saying, oh, yes, me too, or even though that's empathy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I really am noticing how, you know, you, you saying, you know, the show wasn't, wasn't all about, you know, wasn't just me talking about me. And in the way that you talk about it and describe it, of, co- of, of course it's about you, but it's, it also becomes, because it's about, you know, literally it's about your genetic material, it becomes an ancestral story and then the wider story if we think about your grandmother's story because you say on the one hand the sort of the patriarchal story is you know pit accidents or mm. you know industrial diseases and then your your grandmother actually was was dealing with both because she mm. had BRCA1 and she was washing the overalls yeah. um uh and so telling your story is immortalizing all all of them in a way because you know I mean for your grandmother she's there in that play but also more broadly as you talk about it we remember people we just bring them back to life in a way yeah mm. um there's there's something else that's coming up for me as well and you you talked about um it being a kind of over accept of 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 what had happened what was happening to you with the kind of suggestion that it wasn't as simple as that, um, that, you know, telling the world that I'm fine and I've dealt with this and I've been through this and I've written a play about it and I've taken it to all these places, but that it's actually more complex than that in acceptance. Yeah, I think so. I have actually, so when I was 29, I had my double mastectomy, which was, which was, uh interesting um so this is a few years after having made the show yeah so we made the show and then about four years later I've had my double mastectomy and now I'm two years for on from my double mastectomy so when actually when I guys when I met you guys in um, incident room and all that and my mastectomy happened in between writing we were writing incident room then I went away for two months then I came back and we finished writing incident room and then we put it on and all that stuff happened wow so that was kind of that and kind of dealing with it actually having to face the face the operation and things mm. was quite um yeah made me recon not reconsider but you kind of look back on what I read about what I wrote and what what was important to me when I was 25 isn't necessarily what was important to me when it actually came to the crunch mm. so That's for example in Goodstock we never I can't really believe it but I, we never once mentioned breastfeeding at all we don't mention it, not once. We talk about children, we talk about IVF, we talk about the kind of pressure to have kids, but we don't talk about breastfeeding. And that is the one of the main things that when I finally went to have it, they were like, if you know, if you ever, ever have any future children, you will never breastfeed them. And I was like, oh, that is one, the primary function of breast, and two, quite quite upsetting and quite devastating in a, in a way that that's something I won't be able to do. Mm. Mm. does does it 
the, the, the light that it casts on, on good stock, is, is good stock still in the repertoire? Is it archived? Would it be rewritten? I mean, how do you, how do you see it now? Because one of the multiplicity of stories, as Jane has suggested, it's like, yes, you have a new perspective on that same story. Um, I don't, we occasionally, we used to, so before the pandemic, we were performing, we went to Bart's medical school every year and performed like a section. Hmm. So we didn't have a loner. We didn't have the kind of um, older generation. It was more the monologues and the the bits with the doctors. And we did it to uh, medical students. So second year medical students in their lecture hall. But it's a bit strange. It's a strange gig where it doesn't feel very theatrical and it's like slightly eggy performing Mm -hmm. like (laughs) before being like i'm 25 and i'm clearly not 25 (laughs) um obviously not 25 but i think the first year we went it was set up by oh i can't remember anyone's name do you find it in the pandemic it just makes you it's wiped clean the slate of everything he once knew all the tube all the tubes gone i don't know how my way around london and it was like it's all gone um so anyway it was set up by clod ensemble i think Um, and performing Performing medicine medicine. yeah yeah so it's part of their um scheme or system and they got us in and the one of the lecturers I think was very doubtful about how useful this play would be or she just didn't quite know what she was like a consultant and a lecturer and she was and she was just a bit like she came up to us afterwards and was like I had no idea what to expect and I wasn't really sure what what this would bring and then she's like I she was really honest and she's like I just never realized she's like as a doctor I'm like oh we diagnose you with something and then we sort it out and that's that and you're fine and she's like and I've never considered before or forgotten to consider the kind of huge and like varied impact it has on a person to hear this and the the kind of wider impact of it so that was cool and it was like that was a and slightly worrying (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's like oh okay okay. I thought we'd sorted that out since the Victorian era yeah well yeah um so that's good and then we kind of do it kind of became more and more about the q a afterwards Mm. so we'd go in and we'd do like a little almost 30 minute version of good stock and then we'd have a q a afterwards where i'd speak about (laughs) where i was up to so it was quite it's interesting because we've done it four years in a row so i was like oh i'm getting ready to do do my operation or like my operation is in november and then afterwards I can remember one, my operation was in a, in the November and then in the March I was back at Bart's and it was a bit like, oh, I'm three or four months on from an operation and I don't, I can remember just having to be really honest to me that like, I don't quite know how I feel. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'll let you know, I'll let you know in a year's time how I feel. Hmm. Well. When we were looking at the website and when you, uh, uh, in talking about good stock on the website, it says in four years I will have a decision um, and when I saw that, I thought, oh, well, that's, you know, I think that's more than four years ago. So that decision point, I knew that that decision point would have come. And I really didn't know whether to ask you about, you know, like, like what happens next? And that was bringing up for me this idea, well, just because you tell your story once in a particular way doesn't necessarily give me the rights to say, oh, well, what's, you know, what's, Tell me more. You know, t- yeah. tell me more about it because there's something about, you know, op- opening up the story and, you know, people people feeling then that, oh, well, you know, I know this story. I can just, you know, step right into it. 
Um, what, what's been your experience of that over time? I mean, what what was that like for you going back afterwards? I know that you said, you know, I don't I don't know yet. Ask me again in a year. But what was it like? It's just quite strange. It's and a bit surreal. Um, it's funny how how the memory of the play lasts. So some people really remember it and are quite knowledgeable and they're like I I remember what you when you said this this and this and and so did you do this thing? did you do this option I'm like yeah that's that's what I chose and that's what I did whereas other people who definitely saw the show definitely I don't think understood it <laughs> I don't know some some people some of the people in my dad's my dad's in a choir and some of the older gents in this choir are a bit like oh you know well it's it's very brave of you to you know to do it now and not when you're 50 and I'm like what's being 50 got to do <laughs> like okay thanks mm. okay thanks Jim that's good I don't know what I don't know why you've pulled this 50 number oh like that's when women have can't I'm like what yes. like I don't think there's this arbitrary 50 number but okay and I'm like you definitely saw that so you definitely um I don't know I have actually written so I've written like a um like a it's not a part two it's it's very different so it's it's a like but like a, I've really recently actually I just felt the I'm supposed to be doing lots of other work that I've promised to lots of other people. And instead I wrote a big monologue about myself. (laughs) As is my wand. (laughs) As is my wand. Um, So I was like, oh, instead of uh, doing all this actual work I've got, I'm now just writing a thing about preventative surgery and where we're at now. But obviously you you needed to. You needed to tell another bit of the story. I felt like it was the right time. I wrote, I keep diaries a lot and I wrote a lot of very strange and angry and quite violent um, kind of diary entries and like fictional scenes. And they were very angry and very, I was sort of writing a play, but not a play that I'll ever send to anyone because it's just, it's just not written. I'm like, that was, that's a, I read those and I'm like, that's a person who's not ready Mm. to talk about what they're, what they're facing and, I can see where I was and I'm like really clearly in what I'm writing and how angry and visceral it's like very preoccupied with like blood and bodies and violence. I think the Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper doing that research at the same time really got, it got very infected and kind of the, the body image and the way women look and this kind of preventative surgery and what size implants do you want? And I just got very het up with, with kind of the violence that women is portrayed against women for looking like women. So the Yorkshire Ripper was very much, he just hated women and he kind of destroyed and stabbed what made you a woman. And then there's me and I'm having this surgery and this man who I don't know is going to cut me open and make me look like a woman. And I just can't, it was the very like strange thoughts. And I'm two years later now and I'm like, ah, I, I probably need, I needed to write all that strange, violent, blood curdling things down and now I feel a bit more grounded to actually write something more coherent about it mm. rather than just like oh. it's really fascinating Livia because what you, you're kind of revealing to me is that you know I was thinking well Olivia made that show and then you know she made the show about the incident room the York it's called the incident room the Yorkshire Ripper completely different completely separate mm. um she comes from Yorkshire so maybe there's a connection with her story but actually of course 
lives, our lives aren't like that. Our psychology is not like that. And hearing you describe how that all got mixed up and um, what I don't know is where the writing of The Ripper Show came from for you. But I can certainly understand in the way you've just described it how complex it would all get in your mind, in your thinking, in your writing. Yeah, and in your processing of, of that, how the, the pattern of all these different occurrences that are seemingly un, unrelated but, of course, aren't actually. You know, And whether that's in the way that we process something so that we put together, oh, oh yes, somebody is a man, is going to operate on me is going to take a knife to me at the same time as I'm researching this this thing and how the pattern is made afterwards but it's also in it's also happening in in the moment yeah so where did where where did the idea of working on the uh, the ripper story come from that was um so David Byrne who I'd worked with as an actor I jumped in on one he needed a replacement or he needed someone to jump in on a part very quickly for his show Secret Life of Humans the year before or whenever that was 2018 and I was working in a in the maritime museum and having a horrible time and um he rang me and was like do you want a job tomorrow and I was like yes yes I do he said do you want and any and they were like they had to walk on a wall and they were like have you done have you done harness work can you walk on this wall and I was like yes I will do anything to not work in the maritime museum lovely as a maritime museum is um, I will do anything not to stand around in this museum um, so I met him, I kind of got to know him through that. And then we were just chatting. It just came up in talks and he asked, we'd both read this really big, fat book called Wicked Beyond Belief by a guy called Michael Bilton. And it's like a very, it's like almost like a big in-depth, I don't know, he was friends with all the police officers at the time and mm. was there. He was a journalist. He was a Times journalist in Yorkshire at the time. And he's written this sort of like book on it and it's like the authority book, I guess, if you like. And my mum, my mum was living in Leeds as a 16 year old. She'd left home and she was living in Leeds at the time. So at the time, and it really, really affected her. So I kind of had a bit of a, not like a sort of slightly casual, like casual, but enough to read a really big book. Just, yeah. Um, so I've read this. So your, your mother had had just told you stories about that. Yeah, and she was quite affected by it. So my mum still insists that I have a, a, a rape whistle on my keys, right. which I'm sure I joke that if I ever fall in the Atlantic, I'll use like Rose to get a lifeboat. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, thank God. One, I'm sure one day I'll be really glad I've got a whistle on my keys for something, mm. I'm sure. Mm. But um, she's really, and it's kind of like a trauma that's passed down. So she remembers being shouted at once by a policeman because she was cycling home and it was only like four o'clock but it was winter and it was getting dark and this policeman was just shouting at her and yelling at her like get inside get inside like what and he was panicking and my mum was like if the policemen are panicking then it must be really really bad it must be really scary and so she remembers all that and changing the timetable so that they weren't at college late and like ship like a a service bus a a service bus went miles off the route to drop her friend off outside the door because they were so worried about anyone being out so it really affected her so I kind of knew about these I knew these stories I knew the stories of my mum and her friends who were like it was frightening or were frightened and don't walk don't walk through a park late at night mm. um so I read this book and David had also read this book and then we were just talking about how we both read this really big book about the Yorkshire Ripper 
And then it just sort of came from, and David was like, do you think he's a play in it? And I was like, well, yeah, probably. And he's like, do you think people will buy tickets to it? I'm like, yeah, it's Yorkshire Ripper. Of course people will buy tickets to it. I'm like, of course they will. It's true crime. Like, yeah. that's what, certainly people will buy tickets. So it kind of came from there. And then it was like a big challenge of how to do it without, it was strange. We still like, um, yeah, we were constantly fighting with that, like, how to like should we put it on should we not put it on who owns a story is it disrespectful <laughs> really interesting yeah because particularly because you were identified yes it's going to sell tickets the sensational side of it is going to sell tickets so why are we doing it who are we doing it for and yeah. if you're going to tell that story um yes which which bit of it do you, do you really want us to be seeing that we haven't seen before Whose, yeah. story, whose story is it to tell? I'm really interesting again that the ancestral nature of your need to tell that story again, you know, because um, I don't know, you know, there is evidence that we inherit, you know, along with all the genetic material that there's kind of um, not emotion exactly, but there, but the trauma we can inherit. The trauma. I was probably a tiny bit older than your mum, probably in those, you know, and I remember being on uh, on tour with a play in Sheffield and just like, you know, we were told that we absolutely should not walk anywhere, that we had to get a taxi home, you know, it was, and be in pairs and all that stuff. So the idea that somehow you, you absorbed that feeling, there it came again in, in the interest and in the creating of the play. So not your story, but it becomes your story. And so, yeah. Sorry. No, sorry. Uh, and so in the making of it, how did you negotiate that idea of whose, whose mm. story is this? Um, I think we, tr- we were like, who, we were like, how can we, I think, we were like, is it time to re-examine what happened? So there was a lot of, so the, the Ripper case happened and then in about the late, 80s early 90s there were some kind of books published and a lot of the documentaries that we saw there was like a space it's a weird how things bubble to the surface so at the minute the Yorkshire Ripper's bubbling back to the surface and we're kind of like we were I don't know we were a bit earlier but now it's like there's going to be a big ITV drama and there's there's a big thing on Netflix and we're like oh like and he I think when he died like Peter Sutcliffe died recently and so it kind of bubbles into consciousness and we we're just a bit before that and we're like is it time to re-look at this story and th- and how we feel about it because it's one of those things that people are like oh yeah the Yorkshire Ripper open shut we know what happened and we were like actually do we know what happened and do we know what happened with the eyes of today yeah. and can we learn something and can we look at it again even though we looked at it already in the 90s with our 90s goggles on and can we look on it with our 2000 and some 18 goggles and see what else we think and when we found Meg and we spoke to the real Megan Winterburn and she was so and being in that room and the kind of the sort of myths it was really interesting about the myths that we just so like um in the incident room more women worked in the incident room than men but everyone thinks there weren't any women in the 70s they're like obviously there were no women in the 70s only the only the ones that got killed and but actually in the incident room, women outnumbered men two to one. So for every one man working in that incident room, there were two women, but the men were the ones who made the decisions. The men's were the ones that get promoted. The men's were the ones whose stories were written down or who were interviewed. Yeah. Whereas the women were just filers or typists or this or that or the other. So 
there was kind of that and then the kind of disregard for the, the victims themselves and how they weren't really listened to and they themselves were like no that's not with the hoax tape they're like no that's not the man who attacked me and they're like yeah but you're just a woman and we all know women don't exist in the 70s so and we found a similar thing yes. with um people of color people were like oh there wasn't anyone in leeds that looked like me and i'm like there were <laughs> there was like a whole carnival enough people to have a whole mm. west indian carnival every year all the way through the 70s and like so that was it's just strange coming across that and these kind of conceptions that we have as of like uh, that still they're like oh no one was of color in Leeds and no there were hardly any women working anywhere so women didn't work for the police I'm like actually loads of women work for the police just not in we just don't see them and we didn't see them and that's part of the problem it's so fascinating about why stories need to be told and retold mm. because mm. our perspectives shift on them I mean that's what we've seen um last year haven't we with 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 Black Lives Matter and you know statues and the, the the telling of stories um changes over time as our as our attitudes and our perspectives change and and the hidden stories wherever they are hidden start to surface or you can surface the other stories that have have been buried for whatever reason i thought the incident run really you know taking taking us to a moment in time or a series of moments in time um was fantastically effective to to feel like you were just you were stepping back into the that mindset and a different kind of mindset and for some reason I'm I'm kind of remembering the the preponderance of you know paper that it that it was just about you know p- paper before investigations might be digital and the ability mm-hmm. of you know computers to help in just bringing together all that information that it's it's just it's fi- looking for something amid piles and piles of paper, which seems just particularly, you know, of that time or certainly a kind of pre-digital time. But yeah, yeah. you know, to have a woman of colour step into it is like, oh, oh as you say, right, okay, um, let's tell this story in the way that it truly was, not the way that I've got from kind of my memory of seventies cop shows, because seventies cop shows, of course, were populated by white men, you know, yeah. with the odd dolly bird. So, you know, to, to be taken into that moment with a different lens was really powerful. There was something else that was coming up for me about, yes, just that it is taking us into, uh, I'm just kind of building on what you said, I hope, um, just taking us into a historical moment around this figure but but it's about so much more than that yes that may be for the people that like a sensational show and collect you know cuttings about the the ripper that satisfies that but it's about the mores the social Mm. mores of the time it's about the attitudes and that's why it's so much more than just about him and about that that one period of time when he did those things yeah we very consciously didn't, from the start, we were very consciously not putting Peter Sutcliffe in it. I'm like, I don't want an actor playing Peter Sutcliffe. I don't want to hear Peter Sutcliffe's voice. I don't want to do the trial or any of his excuses or any of that. And there's like some of the facts that people know are things that he said is in his like um, in his confession, if you like. And so we were really consciously like, taking I was like we can't put that in as fact because he said that and he's 
twisting it. He's totally twisting it. So it's inter- it was an interesting task to unpick from the narrative what Peter Sutcliffe had put into the narrative about the victims mm. and when, whether they're prostitutes or not. So just because Peter Sutcliffe said he offered her money to have sex doesn't mean that that's what happened. Yeah. He's yeah. spinning it because he knows that people will be more sympathetic if and, and more understanding there was, a, there was a famous bit where one of the police officers said, you know, I hate prostitutes, we'll continue to arrest prostitutes. But, you know, this man this man has to stop now. And they're like, oh, God, it's sort of unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. It, it's making me think about the fact that now, um, thank God there is a revisiting of the, of the Jack the Ripper story, you know, the idea that there are, you know, the Jack the Ripper tours that there have been where you can walk around the area where it happened but it's but it's it's kind of all from the perspective of this mysterious man who did these things um and have been really just pleased to see that there is a reclaiming and a naming of these women and a telling of their story and that now i think that there's a tour that you can do that is that is centered on them and it's about them and it's not even about naming that person but it but it's about remembering their story in this, which I think is, you know, is really, really yeah. important. I, I love that book, The Five. It's so, I, when I was reading it, I was like, this is, it, uh, it shocked me how, how perilously close people were to being okay and not okay. Mm. And how, how fine that line was in Victorian Britain for a woman, especially who was not attached to a man. So if your husband died, you were you were not fine. If your if your husband left you, you were not fine. And it was so slight the the kind of balance between okay and respectable, and then like no, we don't care if you die. Yeah. <laughs> like wow, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. So something in the stories about how women are valued or not. Yeah, valued. yeah. Um, I'm aware of time, but there's something I. I want to know what's going on now as well. We're talking about the pieces you've made over the last years. Um, where where you're going with your work now? And, you know, none of us are one story. You, we've talked a lot about Goodstock and, and that, I would imagine, feels like quite a kind of foundational piece of work for you. It was early on in your career and your your making career and your, your company. How do you see your story now as part of what you write and what you make? Is it still there? Are you very consciously using it? Is it an undercurrent or, or any, <laughs> none of the above? I think it's always there. So what am I work- I'm working in a minute. I'm working on a, a pilot for a, a sort of comedy about working in a Viking museum, which <laughs> I did do for one summer. And obviously I'm... <laughs> not in it but it does help that I worked at one and I kind not of the Jorvik Center. it must be the yeah, of course it's the Jorvik Center. <laughs> the only I'm best Viking experience in the land um so yeah I worked there for a bit so I'm kind of and I remember working there and people being like oh you're gonna write it was 10 years ago that I worked there and I worked there for one summer and people saying like oh you're gonna write a comedy show about this and I was like no I absolutely am not and now I'm like mm, a comedy <laughs> show. 10 years later I'm like oh a comedy show about the only right center so I'm like, oh, how how the mighty fall into the... I'm like, that's a rubbish idea. Now I'm like, that's or a is great it? idea. Or, or is, is it? it? Is it just with a bit of space, we, you know, we, we can mm. see it differently when it becomes yeah. material? 
so I think there's I'm kind of and there's something in that of myself and what what I was what we're like as younger it's kind of a thing about what we're like as younger people and the kind of you kind of have these jobs as an adult and you're in charge of putting people on a ride or looking after a historical artifact and you're actually just some of the decisions you make are just so childish that you're sort of like oh god I can't believe I once one of the famous ones from your book is that I it's this ride and you've got to put a lap bar down and for it to set off the lap bar has to click yeah and this guy came and he was he was lovely he was American he was really keen he'd flown from Wisconsin or somewhere just for the Yorvik Viking Center he's really really obsessed with it and he was like the rock he was massive he was so henge he was huge he's like this giant seven foot man and the bar was too small it wouldn't click and so instead of instead of calling for a manager or doing anything sensible I braced myself against a wall and pushed it pushed it closed onto him with my feet <laughs> which which worked and the bar clicked and it set off and I was like oh phew great another happy customer going around the museum and about 10 seconds later this huge bang and the bar had like sprung forward like Pow! and the whole ride broke and it broke down it was like broken for two hours well, man, it so probably just breathed in. you probably just took a big breath in <laughs> And I was like, why did I do that? And now I'm older. I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I? I'm sure there was another way that I could have sorted that without pushing with my feet a bar <laughs> into a man. So you're mining all these is these potentially comedy experiences. Yes. Are you seeing it showing up in, in other ways as well, in other pieces that you're thinking about? Yeah, I think so. I think there's always a little bit, because just... There always is. And people are, at the minute, I've got a lot of like, what's the idea? What's the idea? What's the idea? So I'm like scrabbling around being like, what's an idea? What's an idea? Yeah. And sometimes an idea is easier to hold on to if you have even the slightest experience or you know someone that's done it or you have a really strong image of a person you've met. And you're like, this, this is the idea. Whereas, I don't know if anyone, I mean, I certainly don't. I never come up with an idea that I haven't got some sort of, I never come up with anything purely fictional. Yes. I don't think in my whole life. I think I've always attached it to something or some story. It's like the real story and then it's heightened or it's a, the real person and then you branch out. I find it very hard just to totally fit like a fictional, entirely fictional world. I'm not sure that anyone comes up with an entirely fictional world. I think they're all probably based somewhere in some sort of reality. Yeah, mm. even Hitchhiker's Guide, I'm sure. Like mm. it comes from real people that, you know, he met or real things mm. incidents that happened it anchors the story doesn't it i think we're done thank you <laughs> that was great thank you that so it's so fascinating so fascinating really appreciate you taking us really through that whole process of of writing and then performing and then reflecting on on goodstock which was clearly a, you know a, a big place to start with